No, I think the only thing that can save us is more things like Shindogu, more universities where you do things which may appear useless and so on and so on. Without this, we are caught in this logic of disposable life. We have to break out, we have to accept life in its meaninglessness, in pleasures which serve nothing and so on and so on. Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 35. Episode 35. <laughs> and today we're doing the first of... Uh, Could you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> and today we're doing the the first of uh, what we're calling Anthropocentences in our never-ending march to brand everything. Um, and so instead of a film, which is usually what we do, we're going to take a break from that and instead talk about a novel and which in this case is Amitav Ghosh's Gun Island which was released earlier this year and Ghosh is somebody we've talked about a lot his book uh, The Great Derangement Climate Change and the Unthinkable is a big sort of guidepost for this whole podcast our whole sort of sort of you know system of thought here at at the show and he's just a author that I think we both uh like a great deal I think Maybe I've read a little bit more of him than you have, perhaps, fiction-wise. Yeah, I've um, just read uh, Gun Island and The Hungry Tide. Yeah, so I've read those two, and then the first, uh, what's it called, River Smoke? No, River Poppies. Sea of Poppies, yeah. Sea of Poppies. <laughs> sea of Poppies. Yep. River Smoke is the second one, uh, part of his um, Ibis trilogy. And I actually just started reading River Smoke a couple days ago, and I'm going to try to work my way through that and try to read the whole uh, the whole trilogy, but he's been around for quite a while now. Um, you know, he's, he's getting quite old, which makes me sad. He's 63 now, but uh, still a flowing mane of white hair. Yes. And a nice big beard or like goatee, I guess. Yeah. Um, so he started his first books in 1986 and then he's just been kind of steadily publishing one every year or two since then. <clears throat> um, so yeah, gun Island is his, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ninth novel, looks like. Uh, on top of some nonfiction books like, like The Great Derangement and Incendiary Circumstances. In an Antique Land, which is a really cool book if you're into like archaeology and Indiana Jones type stuff, but in real life. Yeah, that's one thing uh, I liked about Gun Island was the uh, Indiana Jones's any <laughs> Indiana Jones-ishness. Any, any Anna Jones. Um, yeah. And, and that's one thing we can talk about. And I've actually watched a lot of interviews with Ghosh. And I've actually watched a lot of Indiana Jones (laughs) to prepare. Um, but in all of these interviews, he, he mentions the same, like three or four different points. And one of them is that this novel is kind of a distillation of things that he's interested in. Uh, so you have like the archeology span stuff and you have a lot of stuff about etymology that I'm sure will come up at some point. And then there's all the, the climate related stuff, animal related stuff, um, the Sunderbonds in there, or I think it might actually be pronounced the Shunderbonds. I heard it a few different ways. I, you know, I think I heard him just say just a, a regular S sun, okay. Sunderbonds, Good. I think, uh, but I think I listened to that same interview, at least one of them where he's talking about his converging interests, all, you know, uh, or his interests converging into this, novel and the other interest he mentions which is quite vague is uh history (laughs) yeah history um 
And it's kind of in one of those interviews when he's making the statement, he says something like, or the the interview asks asks him like, did it take a lot of research? Did it take you a long time to write this novel? And he says, no, actually, uh, I wrote it pretty quickly because a lot of the stuff was just like things that I'd already learned about and things I already kind of knew, hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it seems like, and we may have. Uh... We may have said this at the end of one of maybe last week when we were just introducing this, um, but it kind of feels like a the the novel sort of feels like a uh, like an exercise in practicing what he preaches in the Great Derangement. Um, so so I I don't I never really got the feeling that this was like a super sort of sweated over uh literary you know highbrow literary endeavor um it's to me it seems like he's got a sort of a few points to make uh, and a lot of them are about fiction itself um and 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 the book is just sort of like an example um, yeah. an extended example yeah and I I noticed that as well, and uh, actually, this is super like dorky, but I had to write a uh, proposal for a conference paper um, <laughs> earlier this week, and mm-hmm. part of it it's about Gun Island, and so it was a nice overlap of that and the podcast and just my general kind of interest in in Gosha stuff. Um, but in that, I, I kind of try to make this point that it's sort of this is sort of the product that comes out of the other end of this project that he's been kind of tinkering away at for a long time and it kind of starts with the hungry tide and you know maybe even earlier if you kind of really go back and go through everything with a fine-tooth comb but sort of starts with the hungry tide which is in 2004 and it goes kind of through the ibis trilogy those three novels and through the great derangement and so this is sort of what comes out as sort of a synthesis of all of that stuff going on in the novels and the things he's interested in outside of fiction and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is sort of the new, the new climate fiction in a way, because if you think of climate fiction up until now, it's usually thought of as science fiction or something that's like more speculative in nature. It's almost never set in the present. Um, and it sort of, it allows people to relegate that kind of writing to the sort of, you know, uh, genre you know, the, the, yeah they get to put it out in the outhouse um yeah. and he even says that um i have this quote here from the great derangement um he mentions that books like that that fall under speculative fiction or science fiction uh can be relegated to the humbler dwellings that surround the manor house uh so the manor house being serious fiction so instead, yeah it's like sort of, it's like the new the new regionalism yeah yeah so um, I think what will happen kind of inevitably is you'll have people read this novel and sort of categorize it as, uh, magic realism or some kind of shit. Magic realism is the one that comes to mind most yeah. quickly, um, with the quickness, but that's just, it's really reductive and, and insulting in a lot of ways to, to classify it as such. And the important thing that I think he's trying to say here is that He's trying to produce a book that's not not easily classifiable, sort of in the sense that uh, you read it and there's a lot going on, 
but it, at the end of it, it's sort of like, I don't know, it reads almost like a, I don't know, I, I don't even know how you would classify it, it's just like novel. <laughs> like there's some adventure, there's some romance, there's not, there's this weird kind of balance of everything happening in it. Yeah, I think, I, I noticed just how kind of quick the pages went while reading this. I think I read it in two or three days, you know, just a couple sittings. And, uh, it's so much, I, I remember not having that experience with the hungry tide, which is like you said, the novel from 2004 that has some of the same characters, Pia, especially, um, and Tipu, I guess is just a, a young lad in the hungry tide. Um, but it, it feels, even though it has the same characters, takes place in, I guess, the same sort of fictional universe, it feels very different. And it, un- unless I'm just not recalling correctly, uh, Pia is treated very differently uh, by, by Ghosh in, uh, in terms of the, you know, how we're supposed to view the character. But anyway, all that to say, Gun Island feels much more playful and um, very unconstrained or I don't know. I don't know if that's a word, Um, but it doesn't to me, it doesn't take itself too seriously. And, and it just feels playful in a way I was not expecting based on my experience of the hungry tide. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is, is the sort of through line that connects the whole book is this kind of faith, versus reason coincidence versus fate chance kind of thing that keeps happening um, yeah and it, it, you know in those interviews ghost talks about it quite a bit and he mentions that there's a a scene where where dean the narrator is walking down the street in venice and he hears somebody yell at him in bangla to look out or be careful or whatever and because he recognizes that it's bangla he stops and then, you know, a big like masonry stone falls in front of him. Um, and that's sort of this weird moment of recognition of like a Bangladeshi person in Venice. And that's isn't that crazy. But really, it's not because there's so many of them there. Um, and, you know, Ghost talks about the fact that that, that happened to him in real life. Um, so that's, you know, something he's trying to translate directly into the novel and to show that there there are these moments that are seem like incredible unbelievable coincidences at first but in fact are sort of statistically very probable um it, you know on top of all the things that happen in the novel that are not statistically probable that are sort of that suggest an almost intrusion of the supernatural a little bit at times even though it never kind of well we, we could talk about that but it, it never seems to go kind of whole hog like here's the supernatural stuff well, he he problematizes the binary of natural and supernatural, and so sort of dares you to criticize his supernaturalism, you know, yeah. uh, at the end. <clears throat> but uh, that part that you mentioned with the uh, <clears throat> masonry, I guess it's falling off this building. That's what the part I was referring to. Um, I think when I mentioned <clears throat> the movie Don't Look Now, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's there's a weird sort of overlap. Uh, they both, you know, there's both of those scenes take place in Venice, and 
um, it's a, it's in a church in Don't Look Now where he's like Donald Sutherland's character has been hired to restore or re- like renovate this old church. And there's like a precarious moment where he's like up on some scaffolding on the exterior of the church and you kind of feel like he's going to fall. But then there's another moment where he like almost dies standing on some scaffolding. And I think Rafi is like standing on some scaffolding in Venice when this happens. Anyway, the, the intertextuality only, I mean, that could just be like a surface level, you know, coincidence, but it seems like there is some intertextuality in the fact that don't look now is all about, uh, this embrace of the supernatural and, um, Donald Sutherland's character just refuses to believe that his uh, wife is seeing or, or, or has been told that her, their dead daughter, you know, is her spirit is still there that these two, uh, some sort of, I don't know what you call it, like a medium or something has perceived their daughter's presence. And so he's just this rationalist who insists that that's nonsense even though he has these sort of intuitions um, that that uh, defy uh, uh, linearity and chronological time. So I only mention that sort of surface level similarity to suggest that, I, you know, Ghosh might have don't look now in mind in terms of the, that larger theme of, you know, his critique of rationalism. Yeah. And then it, it's, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of like a specific critique of rationalism and specifically, I think it's like rationalism as it concerns writing, writing fiction specifically. Yeah. And you probably uh, remember, cause it's, it's pretty early on in the great derangement <clears throat> when he's talking about sort of the formation of the novel as a, a literary form. And it, it comes along and it sort of develops this character that you can't have anything in it that's too far outside of reality or else it's unbelievable. That's he specifically you you mentioned uh, the, you said the word probability. He mm-hmm. specifically frames this as a problem of prob- probability. He says, you know, what does fiction writing have to do with probability? And his answer is everything. And he explains how. Uh, yeah, exactly what you just said. How, as as storytelling moved from like an oral form, uh, you know, from store storytelling to showing, you know, you always hear that, you know, show don't tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became about bringing the everydayness of everyday life into focus, to emphasize it, as opposed to. Um, you know, uh, transitioning, segueing between uh, improbable event to the next improbable event, which is really what storytelling is. And then there's like, he calls them fillers, you know, in between that to, to get you from one place to the next, which is, you know, in a lot of ways what the Bible is, especially if you look at the gospels and, and the way those stories are told there's a, a, especially I guess it's in Mark where the word immediately 
is used over and over again. The way when people tell stories, they, you know, they just condense time. It's like, oh, I went here and then, you know, immediately after that, I went here and did this, which is not how real life is. And so basically saying there's something a little bit dishonest, uh, Gosha saying there's something a little dishonest and false about uh, the tendency in fiction to bring the everydayness into uh, to be the emphasis of the fiction because improbable things happen and they are at the root of storytelling. Yeah. And so he has this, this one line in the great derangement that kind of sums up where he says, which then has primacy in the real world, predictable processes or unlikely events. And so you're kind of left with this, like, oh, well, is everything that happens unlikely um, or does everything only happen because it has a high probability of occurring? If that was the case, then nothing like super strange would ever occur. Um, right. <clears throat> but it, it goes along with this bigger, you know, project he, he kind of outlines in that where he's talking about the role of climate change or the role of the writer in addressing climate change. And so he says... I've come to recognize that the that the challenges that climate change poses for the contemporary writer, although specific in some respects, are also products of something broader and older, that they derive ultimately from the grid of literary forms and conventions that came to shape the narrative imagination, and precisely that period when the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere was rewriting the destiny of the Earth. <clears throat> Which is, this, I think, uh, interesting to think about that perhaps because of this sort of like unfortunate uh, contempor contemporary contempor whatever the word is for things that happen at the same time um, <laughs> uh, contemporaneous whatever uh, simultaneity contempor yeah. contemporaneity is that a well it, whatever the word is um, of the development of the novel as this form that is meant to be kind of reflective of real life and not introduce anything that's too wacky at the same time that climate change is sort of beginning, well, the great acceleration specifically is happening and we're sort of pumping ever more emissions into the atmosphere and that sort of stuff that it kind of served as a roadblock or at least some sort of, you know, blinders that would keep writers from addressing such things. Um, yeah. Or at least addressing them in what's called, you know, quote unquote, serious fiction, that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Instead, you had to re read like the English patient or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's uh, jumping off from that. Here's a passage in Gun Island that I think is meant to be reflective of those sort of theoretical things he's talking about. This is uh, on the first page of the chapter called Friends, which is a little over halfway through the book on page 205. He says, uh, and then I recalled the resolution I had made while I was on the phone with Pia that I would keep faith with myself. I reminded myself that it was possible that this was all an outcome of the randomness that it, it that is always imminent in the world. Pure chance, in other words. Wasn't it said that monkeys pounding on a typewriter would eventually reproduce a play by Shakespeare? Surely the odds against that were far greater than whatever it was that was happening to me. In any event, that was what I had to believe if I were to preserve my sanity. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. something I think is really interesting there is his use of the word faith, that I would keep faith 
with myself, mm-hmm. but he kind of is inverting the, the typical use of faith. So in this conception, faith becomes necessary to sustain rationality. That's sort of what he's trying to hold on to. In, in, in that passage, sanity is synonymous with rationality. So his faith becomes necessary to sustain rationality, while an empirical perspective, you know, in, in this part of the book, suggests something supernatural or spiritual. So again, like I said earlier, he is problematizing that binary of natural and supernatural to what to the point where empiricism in this novel is only sustained through a willful act of faith which is the exact opposite of how we normally think about faith and what you know how we associate it with supernatural or spiritual you know a spiritual understanding of the world um, and it's also tied up with this issue of randomness and coincidence and um so you can see the uh that correlation we're talking about sort of a one-to-one correlation of his theoretical ideas in the great derangement and his practice or his uh like i said this book is sort of an example of everything he's talking about in that book yeah and he even mentions this in some of those interviews as well of uh talking about reason or rationality as a kind of faith, which Mm -hmm. I think is important. It's sort of like, this is a stupider version of it, but like arguing that atheism is the lack of faith when really it's just sort of a different kind of faith, that sort of thing. Like if you're a really devout atheist, then you still have faith in something. Um, So yeah, it's that idea that only through maintaining his sort of faith and devotion to reason and uh empiricism and that sort of stuff only then can he maintain his sanity because the alternative is to give up on that and instead see things happening as being supernatural um which is it's it's interesting because he where he lands i think is sort of he doesn't really seem to lean one direction he doesn't have the full sort of coming around to being like oh this was you know this was all magic. This was all spiritual and that sort of stuff. And said he right. sort of becomes more open-minded, I guess. Yeah. And that's what's, that's what's so cool about it. And that's what I mean when I say he's problematizing the binary to where, like, like you said, he just becomes more open-minded. His, his, uh, uh, framework for like what is possible is broadened. Not, he's not experiencing a miracle. Maybe if had he had this experience, you know, five years before the story took place or, or a year or whatever, he would have called it a miracle. Uh, but one of my favorite parts or aspects of this book, which is only hinted at in that passage I read, is there's this sort of emotional breakdown that the main character, Dean, is having. Yes. You know, but it's like – and he's the narrator – And, and yet the emotional breakdown is kind of, uh, peripheral. It's like not the focus and you only hear about it, uh, through the way other characters respond to Dean. He does not tell you like, oh, I'm, 
I'm, uh, I've stopped shaving and I, I haven't slept in weeks. Uh, but other characters sort of hint that that is the case and that he looks like hell. But I think that's one of the few mentions that passage that I read is one of the few times he mentions his own sanity slipping. Um, and he's just sort of along for the ride. It's like he's been caught up in something bigger than him to where his present kind of emotional reality is not the focus of the story, even though it's a first person narrator, um, which is interesting given all the stuff in the great derangement about the novel as individual moral adventure. You know, he's sort of arguing against that in the great derangement. Mm -hmm. And uh, my favorite, I really like the whole aspect of it as well that, you know, he's the narrator, but he's not necessarily the sort of the, the, I don't know, center of the story, so to speak. He's, he's the tour guide. Yeah. He's kind of like a, like a, uh, what's the word? Like a cipher, siphon. I don't know. I sound like a fucking idiot. Um, he, he's sort of the <laughs> lens through which we, we, we view the story, but he's not really, it's not about him. He's, he's kind of temporaneity siphon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but one of my favorite parts of that whole sort of sequence where he's he's just kind of falling apart is it, it's mentioned at one point like it all happens pretty quickly, and then at one point he's like, "Oh, it had been a year since I had been in the Sunderbonds," and you're like, "Holy yes. shit, <laughs> this guy has been struggling for months." Right, and he's that's Ghost sort of fucking with our sense of like chronological, you know, linear time. Yeah, and you know it's it's pretty effective, and and he, I think it's 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 good because we end up being almost as disoriented as Dean is. We're like, oh, I guess it has been a year. It's it's not unlike um, we've talked about this movie a few times on this podcast briefly, but uh, Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman's film, mm -hmm. uh, has a similar sort of uh, disorienting. Uh, depiction of time where you you know in in a normal movie maybe a week or so has passed and it turns out it's been like three years or something uh, and it's extremely anxiety inducing in that film uh, and and in the book in this book too uh, and i think that's to to defamiliarize us and to shake us up, you know, wake us up a little bit, um, and and to fuck with our sense of linear time. Yeah, I I totally agree. But like, uh, so this is kind of jumping through the book a little bit, jumping around. Um, House of Pain. House of Pain. <laughs> so, um, am I in the right place? No, hold on. Um. Here we oh, go. Damn it. I'm so, looking at a <laughs> book by Freud. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're talking about how at the end, Dean, it just ends up being kind of more open to the possibility that these things are maybe more than just coincidences or, you know, mistakes of probability or whatever. And specifically, I'm thinking of the quote unquote miracle that happens at the end. Mm -hmm. And I call it that not to like, not because I'm viewing it that way, but that's very much how it's presented as maybe yeah. it's a miracle. 
And so you have this this boat of refuge, refugees, and we haven't really explained the plot of the book, and we're not going to. We're just going to talk about it as if you know what we're talking about. As if yeah, you've read go it. read it, you fucking <laughs> Philistines. Um, but you have this boat of refugees, and this is the big sort of climactic thing. You have the Italian Navy bearing down on them, and you have all these animals that are sort of gathered around, and the boat that Dean and everybody's on, it's like the sympathizers. <clears throat> and this woman steps forward on the on the refugee boat, the blue boat, and they've sort of mentioned her a couple times before, like the Ethiopian. Kind of made me yeah. think a storm from the X-Men. I don't know. I'm sure he didn't mean for that to happen, but that's kind of what it made me think of. And so she steps up and says the woman lifted her arms now, raising them until they were level with her shoulders, palms facing upwards, and almost instantly a funnel-like extrusion appeared in the storm that was spinning above us. It began to extend downwards, forming a whirling halo above her head. She stood absolutely still for what was perhaps only a moment, with a halo of birds spinning above her while down in the water a chakra of dolphins and whales whirled around the boat. And then an even stranger thing happened. The color of the water around the refugee boat began to change. In a few moments it was filled with a glow of, or with a glow of an unearthly green color, bright enough that we could see the outlines of the dolphins and whales that were undulating under the water. And Pia, in her like, Never-ending wisdom is like, bioluminescence, oh wow. Uh, for, for a few moments more, we were transfixed by this miraculous spectacle, the storm of birds circling above like a whirling funnel, and the graceful shadows of the leviathans and the glowing green water below. Then all of a sudden, a siren went off on the Admiral's flagship, and a few seconds later, a helicopter took off from its foredeck. And now it was as if a storm has, had passed. The birds flew on, the water ceased to glow, and the spouts died down. By the time the helicopter reached the blue boat, the water was calm and the sky was clear. And then, you know, we get this thing of, like, the Italian admiral says, well, well, they're like, oh, you defied orders. And he said, well, the prime minister said not to rescue them unless there was a miracle. And I think this was a miracle. And Pia, who doesn't change, um, or at least right. not outwardly, she's there to be sort of like the devout follower of reason and rationality and science. The academic rational perspective, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so... The captain or the admiral is giving this interview and Pia says, like leans over into Dean's ear and is like, he's wrong. You know, there's a scientific explanation for everything that happened there. It was just a series of migratory patterns intersecting in an unusual way. And he's like, even the bioluminescence. She's like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. And he says, well, have you heard of anything like this happening before? And she's like, well, no, but, you know, it's probably just because climate has sort of the way she says it. It says animal migrations are being hugely impacted by climate change, so nothing is surprising now. I'm sure we'll see more of these intersecting events in the future. And he says, well, don't you think it's strange that it all happened at once? And she says, I don't know. I really don't know. All I can say is I'm grateful it happened the way it did. Yeah, this is, it's a recurring thing where uh, Dean in his, you know, coming to a more open-minded place, a less rational place, is presenting um, sort of uncanny and coincidental experiences to Pia, who is, like you said, depicted as this academic, rational, you know, uh, just a rationalist. And she is constantly providing rational explanations to his experiences, his uncanny experiences. And this happens to the point where in the novel you are like, – like that passage I read, you come to see Pia's 
insistence on a rational explanation as the as the perspective that requires faith whereas you know dean's empirical experience with his own two eyes of this uh, and, and other people's empirical experience of this event suggested a miracle which is you know the language of the spiritual um and so again he's doing that thing where he's inverting the association of faith uh from the spiritual or religious to the empirical uh to i think kind of uh, rejuvenate um a sense that life and nature the earth is alive that's one of the things uh, a theme that he hammers home especially in uh some of the uh lectures he gives that the earth is a an entity with agency not an inert uh rock upon which a human drama unfolds yeah absolutely and and um going back to this this sort of the way that pia says this where she says you know that's not normal but that's just the climate change has affected these migratory patterns so much that this will become more commonplace and it's sort of it's sort of interesting because it's like okay well you're saying that things have changed massively and there is this sort of force that we don't understand that is bigger than us moving along but at the same time you're like oh well that's all explainable too right and sort of never never yielding that sort of you know torch of rationality as religion and it goes into things Gosha said where he, uh, you know, talks about the, the world becoming uncanny or at least uncanny in the sense or in the way that we experience it. Um, and he said at one point, it was kind of funny cause he gives this, this long talk and this was sort of a talk about the great derangement and that kind of stuff. And then at the end, they ask him about gun Island. This is from a, like a few months ago and the way all he says is it's a book about the realities of our world as I see them. And that's sort of, and he's like, that's all I have to say for now. <laughs> um, which was, I think was really interesting. And he also said at one point, you know, this is not fundamentally a scientific problem. It's a problem of culture and desire, which is, a, you know, this is kind of getting, getting off into another conversation. So I won't like go too far into it, but I think it's really, really just really fucking interesting and intriguing and kind of brave to come out and say, well, Climate change is not a problem of science. It's not a scientific problem. And this goes all the way back to, I think, maybe our first episode when you said, like, what what is there in science that tells us that climate change is bad? That tells yeah. us that it's a net yeah. negative. It's a recurring question. And, and what I was just going to say in relation to our conversation about Pia is why does she care? Yeah, like why why does maintaining that matter so much? And that I I want to say that in the first episode we talked about this in relation to I had sort of stolen or appropriated that idea from something Curtis White says about Marx, where you know Marx is talking about the exploitation of the worker, and and Curtis White says Marx always sort of just assumed what he needed to prove that um that exploiting a human being was a bad thing 
and and of course Marx famously rejects any sort of religion or spirituality. Uh, but without without a some sort of spiritual framework um, where an individual human being has some sort of um, inherent sort of sacred value uh, value is a terrible word because it sounds so financial um, but I guess that's as good as I can do uh, without some sort of spiritual framework you can't say that to exploit a worker is bad because what is a worker uh, the same way you can't say invite you know environmental destruction is bad without some some sort of spiritual or or convincing ethical framework to stand on um, and that, I mean this is I think this is like the problem because because now you're getting into like uh, I mean you're getting into problems of religion and spirituality and meaning and everything um, and I, I'm to me this this is where it feels like the real roots of of uh you know the the ideology of dominion come in um, and i i think it's i think the destruction that is often associated with dominion i think i think that's a real a real problem um i think dominion that idea is you know definitely a problem but it may be a little bit beside the point and i think i think even equally destructive is not a spiritual ideology of dominion but a lack uh, or, or maybe a financial or economic ideology of sort of secular consumption there is no spiritual framework on which to stand life is about uh, 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 producing profit to make the most number of people happy which of course is not what capitalism does but ideally that's what it would be about all that to say you can't uh, you can't it, it's very difficult to make ethical arguments without some sort of deeper deeper spiritual framework to stand on yeah and it even kind of it, it i don't know it kind of goes beyond that if you talk about the end of the world as a concept or not even the end of the world but the the end of the world in the sense of the the end of, of humanity humans as a species that's not yeah. you know that there's not again there's nothing in science to say that that is a bad thing that would happen it would just be a thing that would then be adjusted to and there's a really great um in this elizabeth colbert essay um it's in uh, field notes from a catastrophe in the the first chapter she's talking to the scientist and he gives this metaphor of a um or analogy i guess of a rowboat and he says the climates are like a rowboat where you know you're in a rowboat and you like rock it and it'll rock to one side and rock to the other but eventually it'll stabilize and mm -hmm. come back to how it was but eventually if you rock it too far then it flips over but being upside down is just another 
form of stabilization. So the boat's stable and floating, but the people in it are gone, right? Are, are right. underwater. People, people can, yeah, people cannot be stabilized in that particular arrangement. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think that's a really clever metaphor. Uh, but, you know, Zizek would say, like, I love it. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's a pure ideology. Yeah. I don't know if it's true, but I love it. Um, but, yeah, just uh, there's, again, if you don't have some sort of framework of ethics or morality or something, then there's nothing to keep you from thinking that things like climate change or whatever it may be are, are, are fine. Or even if you can sort of, depending on the ideology that you subscribe to, you might think that in fact they're good for whatever reason. Um, so it's just, I think it's important to, to remember that, that science is a very important tool, but as Ghost says, it's not really a scientific problem per se it's a problem of how well he said he calls it a problem of uh, culture and desire which i think is like he means a lot of things in there but i think that's a good way to kind of boil it down is it's a problem of the way we've constructed these things the way we look at them and it's a problem that so much of world society globalized society is, is predicated on desire and wanting something else yeah, uh, there's a great quote in Gun Island that I'm going to find momentarily that really makes that case that you just stated. Is it the guy's story? Pash, no. The guy he meets? Shit. I was just looking at it. I marked it because, like I said last week, I was I finished up Sister Carrie. Here it is, and it kind of it. This sounded like something Dreiser would have written in Sister Carrie. Uh, Ghost writes, uh, "It was the desires and appetites of the metropolis that moved people between continents in order to churn out ever-growing floods of saleable merchandise." In this dispensation, slaves and coolies were producers, not consumers. They could never aspire to the desires of their masters. Yeah, yeah and that's, desires. That's kind of toward the end, right? Yeah, yeah. Three, like 300 plus, something like that. Yeah, page 304. Yeah, and, the, and that those that whole section is really... He, he has these like... It's really interesting because it's definitely a book that has a strong plot and it's, it's following these characters. But then he'll have these like three or four page digressions where he's obviously inserting something that he is very passionate about or has a lot to say about. Yeah, or Pia will just like explain a complex scientific process. Yeah, and it, it's I, I love it when that happens. Um, some people might not like that, but I, I think it's great. Um, but yeah, and then he goes on and he's talking about sort of the mindset of who he calls the angry, the angry young men on the boats around them. You know, these people, the signs are like refugees go back, that sort of stuff. And he's talking about the, the project and he's talking about that sort of the project of imperialism. And he said, this entire project had now been upended. The system of technologies that had made those massive demographic interventions possible, ranging from armaments to the control of information had now achieved escape velocity. They were no longer under anyone's control. And then at the a paragraph or two later, he writes, the world had changed too much too fast. The systems that were in control now did not obey any human master. 
They followed their own imperatives, inscrutable as demons. Um, <laughs> uh, that uh, going back to your boat to the boat metaphor you were citing, um, uh, in light of all this, uh, I happened upon a George Carlin. <laughs> okay. Video uh, where he's just shitting on environmentalism, and I respect George Carlin. Uh, I like a lot of what he says, but he's he's talking about how uh, the planet is not dying. Uh, people are dying, and basically he says the the planet's gonna shake us off like a bad case of fleas. <laughs> And, uh, but it, it makes me think about, um, that, that, uh, boat metaphor you were using and, and just, just to sort of clarify the way we sort of talk about it on this podcast is like, I don't think anyone's under the impression that planet earth is going to not exist anymore. And, and that's sort of the way Carlin is talking about it. As, as if environmentalists think that we are actually going to destroy the planet when really what everyone's talking about is we're destroying a particular arrangement that makes it possible for humans to live comfortably, relatively comfortably on the planet. Um, anyway, I, I don't want any, if anyone's listening out there, I don't want anyone to think, that we think that planet Earth is going to be somehow uh, disappeared by human activity. No, yeah, and it's in like some of our our branding stuff. I think like the synopsis I wrote like back forever ago when we started was like looks at culture and from the viewpoint of a dying planet or something like that. And it just sounded cool. <laughs> uh, but like even, you know, welcome to the end of the world. I don't say welcome to the end of the earth. The earth is fine. It's right. the world as we've come to sort of know it and understand it and live in it. Yeah. Just to just to qualify that, because it, it seemed listening to Carlin talk about it, it seems so, uh, you know, he was just setting up a straw man argument and. Uh, I didn't. I just don't want anyone to think that that is the perspective of environmentalism because it's it's really not. Yeah, and so to sort of continue along this line, um, and the, the, it's it's kind of an interesting kind of line of thinking that Ghost takes as it relates to migrants um, because this book is about. It, you know, it talks a lot about climate change, but it's also very much about the the refugee crisis, migration crisis. Yeah. And so toward the end, we get the story of uh, Palish, or Palash, I'm not really sure how you pronounce the name, but this uh, young Bengali Actually, guy. it's Schnee Blay. <laughs> yeah. Um, this Bengali guy that, that Dean meets, and he tells him his story, that he came from this privileged background, but he always wanted to go to Finland for whatever reason. And he sort of like ends up in Venice and then like things fall apart for him. And then eventually he ends up on, you know, he ends up being kind of one of these workers. Um, that's just sort of, uh, you know, doing masonry work and all that sort of stuff. And 
it's part of this kind of larger discourse that comes up pretty early in the novel where he um, makes it very evident that Venice specifically has a lot of Bengali workers and that they're the ones that are building the buildings and making the pizzas and serving the gelato and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, which if you're interested in that kind of thing of like third world populations becoming like the workers of the world, then you should check out uh, George Saunders is the brain dead microphone where he has an essay about how he goes to Dubai and and it's it's hilarious but also he talks a lot about seeing these you know like pakistani workers being exploited and stuff like that but this polish guy is telling a story and he says you know it's kind of because i had this dream and it kind of led me to ruin and dean asks him was your dream a kind of a curse and he's explaining it and he says i suppose so but everyone has a dream don't they and what is a dream but a fantasy think of all the people who come to see venice what's brought them there but a fantasy right and he talks about the the uh, gondolas and all that sort of stuff. He says, do they know that all, all this is made possible by people like me, that that it is we who are cooking their food and washing their plates and making their beds? Do they understand that no Italian does that kind of work anymore, that it's we who are fueling their fantasy even as it consumes us? And why not? Every human being has a right to a fantasy, don't they? It's one of the most important human rights is what makes us different from animals. Have you seen how every time you look at your phone or a TV screen, there is always an ad telling you that you should do whatever you want, that you should chase your dream, that impossible is nothing. Just do it, right? I think that's Adidas and Nike. Um, what else do these messages mean? But that you should try to live your dream. You may ask any Italian; they will tell you that they have a fantasy. Maybe they want to go to South America and see the Andes, or maybe they want to go to India and see the palaces and jungles. And if you're white, it's easy. You can go wherever you want and do whatever you want. But we can't. <laughs> when I look back now and ask myself why I was so determined to go to Finland, I always come back to this. I wanted to go there because the world told me I couldn't, because it was denied to me. When you deny people something, it becomes all the more desirable. And then that's part of his uh, sort of uh, discourse that he has in the book about cell phones and desire and how, you know, from the moment you're born, you're sort of flooded with images that are sort of beckoning you to go someplace else, do other things, have these experiences, live a different kind of life, that sort of stuff. And I think that's what he's talking about when he's talking about this is what we talk about when we talk about Ghosh saying that, uh, you know, it's a problem of culture and, and desire of these young people because of the how ubiquitous technology is, specifically smartphones and stuff like that. Um, you see how people in, you know, the global north or the first world or whatever you want to call it are living. And you think, yeah, I want to give me some of that. Why can't I have that? Why is that foreclosed to me? Um, and so... You know, you hop on a boat or you try to cross a border somewhere, right, to, to get to it. Yeah, there's a, uh, a very um, smart movie called Alambrista from like the late 70s or early 80s. I don't know who made this. I know it's on the, in the Criterion collection. And it's about a, a Mexican immigrant illegally crossing the border and, uh, you know, looking for work. And it's clear that this immigrant has, you know, has had access to these images that suggest a certain narrative of, of life in America. And of course his experience is vastly different and it's filled with, 
manual labor and uh, poverty and all the things we know are uh, usually the, the true experience for working class people in America. And it ends with, with the, the main character turning himself in for illegal immigration so that he can go back to Mexico, which he left this particular character, you know, has left a, was not fleeing. Like he wasn't a refugee. He was not fleeing violence or, or, or anything like that. Uh, he was just looking for a higher mode of existence or whatever. He didn't want to have to work for his, uh, you know, toil for his food or whatever. Um, so that to me, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, not, not immigration. I think, I think that's a very simple issue, especially in the case of refugees. Um, but in, in terms of the narrative, you know, it's so strange to me, uh, how even, even on the left, even like, you know, so-called liberal politicians, um, are, are pro, you know, they, 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 they should have to go through the proper channels to, uh, to come here as if the lines on the map are real. And, <laughs> yeah. and yet America still is just churning out, um, in, in sort of neo-colonial ways, especially through the film industry, uh, this, this ideal America. And you wonder, like, why, why do we sell ourselves this way if we don't want people to come here? And again, I'm not saying I, I don't want people to come here. I, uh, I think anyone should. Um, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. But <laughs> I, I, I'll just say I think border policy is. Uh, preposterously restrictive. Um, but why do we sell ourselves as this great place to be in an international film market? If we don't want people coming here, um, it makes no fucking sense to me. Yeah. Uh, the, the film is by Robert M. Young is the director of Alambrista. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that is a movie I've seen one time, and I know I will never forget it. It's a uh, tough one to forget. It, it won uh, the Golden Camera at at Cannes. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and it is a complicated. I mean, it's complicated for many reasons. But if you get just into who qualifies as a refugee and what type of refugee, that sort of stuff. Um, so if someone coming here from Guatemala um could they be considered like an economic refugee if they're just like coming here to make some sort of living for themselves or maybe they have a lot of family here like how do you qualify that um because the one the refugees that have been uh privileged and I use that word knowing that how horrible it sounds I mean privileged in the sense that they've been uh granted sort of recognition and they're seen by the government um are ones fleeing uh, usually war or some sort of religious persecution 
um, stuff like that. And climate change refugees are not really legally a thing. Uh, at least, you know, not definitely not in the United States. And I don't see them ever becoming a thing really. Um, and you know, maybe if we can get Bernie in there, he'll do something, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if, if, I mean, you look at what's, what science is saying is going to happen, uh, weather wise and what, and what is already happening, it will be a fuck catastrophe if Trump is a reelected in terms of climate refugees. Yeah. I mean, just talking about Bangladesh, like just that as kind of a test case, right? So this country is very tiny, but it has one of the largest populations in the world. It's like 163 million people, something like that. I'm looking at Wikipedia. I didn't have that off the top of my head. And <laughs> and it's in this area that is basically one giant river delta. It's one of the most sort of flood prone areas in the world. And if something happens in the city of, of, of Dhaka, right, the capital, which is, again, in this place where it's prone to flooding and, and cyclones and stuff like that. And that city. The aptly named uh, Dhaka. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's a city of like nine million people. Um like if something happens and that city becomes unlivable or large parts of the country become unlivable, those people have to go somewhere. Right. And there are a whole lot of people around the world that would prefer they just go into the fucking ocean. Uh, so it, it's, well, it's, we all know something. that American life is inherently more valuable than any other national nationalities life. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been I read this in the Bible. I've been, uh, listening to the audiobook of how to hide an empire by daniel emmerwar i think is how you say his name um and yeah there's a whole lot of st historical precedent of americans saying their lives mean more than anyone else's in that i was reading I mean, about the battle of manila in world war ii and the soldier saying that he would rather lose a whole building than one american soldier uh disregarding the fact that the buildings could be full of philippine civilians um, pretty cool stuff. I mean, I'm telling you that is, that is seriously the perspective of a lot of people I know and they, and they don't understand what they're saying. I mean, that is just, that is so barbaric, but it's so common that people cannot recognize it as barbaric um i mean it's deeply racist it's deeply xenophobic um and it is just normal yeah and just and this is gonna this is gonna sound horrible but i'm gonna say it anyway if you think about 9-11 right it's this like nationally sanctified event and you know it in a lot of cases rightfully so it was a horrible loss of life it was a terrible thing that happened but then you counterbalance that against over a million Iraqis, God knows how many Afghanis, right? Still going on, still dying to this day, right? It's almost like, well, where does the bloodlust kind of stop, right? Like, when are things fair and square, right? And, and the thing is, it's never been about that, um, you know? Nice and sad. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, it's not uh, again, not it's, condoning. It's because 9 it's because nine eleven provides a convenient 
black and white sort of narrative. Um, and, and again, that's not to, it's not at all. In fact, it's the opposite. We're, you know, we're not trying to say that 9-11 is unimportant or not a tragedy. It is. And if, and if losing 3,000 lives is a tragedy, then we have to start including a lot of things America is responsible for uh, as tragedies abroad. Uh, because there is nothing, there is no difference between the loss of an American life um, and and any other nationality's life. Nationalities are fucking fictions. You know, I, I, it's weird that I that I even feel compelled to say this because it's so obvious. You know, uh, and yet. Uh, you know, a, a large percentage of Americans walking around will never question um, their idea that American life is inherently more valuable because Proud it is pumped be into their American, fucking DNA. At least I know I'm free. <laughs> and I won't forget those the men who died, who died <laughs> and gave their right to be and I'm proudly stand up. Are you standing? I'm standing. Are you standing? <laughs> I'm um, taking my shirt off at this point. Yeah, that's... Uh, I remember, like, playing trivia once, and they played that song, and at that point, like, a bunch of old, you know, fuckheads stood up. And started jerking off. And, like, took off their hats, and I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Um... <laughs> If you don't think it's weird that like a song like it triggers a, a response in you in which you stand up and like remove your hat and all that, like that's weird. Like even if it's a national anthem, a little bit weird. I'll oh, do I, it. I'll do it so people dude, don't yell I, at me. But <laughs> when I taught high school, when I taught high school, I've forgotten somehow about the, uh, the Pledge, Pledge of, of Allegiance. Allegiance. That how fucking <laughs> I mean because because oh. you don't do the Pledge of Allegiance for you know when you're in college or something and i had just totally forgotten about it they did it in and high the school? first day i was teaching say what they did it in the high school yes that's so weird we quit doing that in like elementary school i think you godless heathens um yeah dude they did it in the in in the high school and i had just forgotten about it and the first day everyone stands up and puts their fucking hands on their hearts and it's like i'm in north korea and and even that phrase, the pledge of allegiance, is just you have to renew Orwellian. it. Daily. It's like creepy. Yeah, and it's the the great part where it's one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all <coughs> whites. Uh, pre- pretty <laughs> cool. Um, I remember we would do that, and I think in sixth grade is kind of when we stopped doing. It. I don't remember doing it in middle school, but maybe we did. But I remember there's a oh. <laughs> there's a girl in, uh, in my class. I actually had a crush on her for a little while, uh, but she was a juggalo or like ended up being or I guess a juggalette, <laughs> a juggalette, if you want to use the the gendered version of the pronoun. Nope, it's um, juggle, juggle, juggalo. Yeah, and so she like refused to just one day she was like fuck it and didn't stand up for it, and then for like the rest of the school year everybody's like oh she's fucking she's crazy. And I, she, meanwhile, she Kaepernicked it, man. And meanwhile, like I'm standing there with my hand on my heart, like wish I was that brave. 
Oh man, it's it's so interesting to me how offended people get about that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and it's I don't know, it, I, I don't know. There's just it, there's a lot of stupid thing, like the whole freedom isn't free thing, and just uh, just all that, just hyper patriotic shit, like the the mug that you bought me. As a as like a <laughs> yeah. going away gift where it's a giant mug what is, and it says, what does it say? it's patriotic noun, right? Patriotic noun. <laughs> yeah, it's noun. labeled as a noun. And then patriotic it, um, noun. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, and you said you like asked the woman at the store and she just like, she's like, no, it's spelled right. She said it was a pun. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, that's not, that doesn't. No, it's a mistake is what it is. I don't think you know what a pun is. I don't think you know what a noun is. Yeah. I don't think you know what this word means, um, but you know, getting back to the book, nationality, it's interesting because in the book, and, and I want to take it back to the uh, dumb old lady at old time pottery for a second. <laughs> and uh, uh, no. I believe her name was Glinda. So there's, and Ghost kind of does this. He has a lot of books in which the characters are kind of hyper mobile and globe trotting and that sort of, but not in a way that's like Jay Z jetting off to paris fashion week or something it's like it's more kind of mundane and and so in this book we have dean who's like a rare bookseller and because he's originally from india he travels sort of back and forth um at certain times um you have uh chinta is how i think it's pronounced spelled like cinta but i think because it's italian it's chinta um who's this like she's a historian some kind of academic right i want to say historian yeah and so because she's this like world renowned, you know, historian of, of Italian history and all that sort of shit, she she flies around different places. Pia is sort of like Dean where she teaches at a place in Oregon, I think, or Washington. I is she's like a marine is she a marine biologist? Marine biologist and she she teaches at a university and then in, in the summer yeah, in she like goes back to India and, and works in the, the Sunderbonds. Um and then Tipu and Rafi, who we haven't even mentioned yet, who are pretty cool characters, uh, they travel around in the novel because they're, um, you know, trying to get out of India and travel to Europe for reasons that are like not made completely clear, but it kind of make a lot of sense when you put things together. So within it, you have a lot of different nationalities. You have, you know, Italians and Indians and specifically, you know, Bengali Indians and, and Bengalis and you know, Americans and all this sort of stuff. Um, and it doesn't feel it, when you do something like that, it can end up feeling like James Bond or like Carmen San Diego, where it's like, Ooh, now we're in this exotic locale, but it never really feels that way. It feels very sort of, it's like he flew to Peoria or something, right? When he's in Venice walking around, it's not, it's well, not really played it's that, up. And, but like the realities of travel are, are often acknowledged to where it doesn't feel super, like you're saying, like James Bondish, where he's yeah. like, he, he agrees to go to Venice because he's going to be a translator for this documentary that's being made. Mm-hmm. And so his ticket is paid for. So it's not like, you know, you know, like James Bond, there's never any mention of like, how does he survive financially? Yeah, you don't get him like, adventures? you don't get a clip of him like taking a shit at the airport or anything <laughs> like that. Right, right. Whereas Gun Island is just full of shit scenes at airports. Page. 
Um, no, there is that, that nice scene where he's flying into Venice, I think. And he mentions that from that height, uh, or maybe he's flying out, but from that height, the, the lagoon, and he keeps calling it the lagoon of Venice. And I think that's very kind of purposeful. Say it says the lagoon of Venice looked exactly like the Sunderbonds, which is Mm -hmm. a cool kind of parallel to draw because they're both sinking into the sea, that sort of thing. Um, Right. Even though one is like this sparsely inhabited, very important natural, natural quote unquote, sort of like undeveloped, we'll call it area. And the other one is this tourist trap. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So yeah, you you do get that. It is sort of it, the travel is not made spectacular. It's very kind of like sitting on a plane, your knees hurt because you can't get up, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and uh, Gosh has uh, called attention to, especially in the Great Derangement, about how quick people are to judge, and and, and we're definitely guilty of this on this podcast. Uh, you know, it's so easy to point out personal sort of carbon footprint things like, oh, Al Gore is just flying around the fucking world um, <laughs> yeah. with, without considering the sort of, I mean, I mean, that's minuscule compared to larger sort of paradigm shifts that have to happen. Um, and so I, I don't think he's particularly like uh, uh, puritanical about that particular issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, in our defense, Al Gore's a, Al Gore's a big old fucking nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. Um, And nerds need to be punished. Uh, No, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> trying to pivot back into serious discussion. In um, our defense, Al Gore is a big old fucking nerd. Yeah, um, I stand. You by heard it words. here first, folks. That'll, that it's like a a really cool book blurb. <clears throat> but I could just see his next was like an inconvenient uh, trilogy. Matt Spencer. Al Gore's a big old fucking nerd. The best book by a big fucking nerd published this <laughs> year. Um. Well, so I—I I mean, speaking of nerd stuff, I—and we can sort of come back to what we were talking about, but I've already, I've forgotten what it was. So, um, just to look at the first sentence of this book, I think it's uh, does an interesting thing that I didn't catch until thinking about it before we started recording. And it says, uh, the strangest thing about this strange journey was that it was launched by a word. Uh, and, and then there's more. And the, the word is bunduk, which is this like word for gun in, uh, in Bengali. Uh, or, well, in a lot of languages. But it, I just thought that was interesting of that it was launched by a word. And so much of the book is concerned with words and etymology and, and things like that. Specifically, uh, he talks about... Uh, the the gun merchant uh, which is where gun island sort of the title comes from when i first heard the title of the book i was like what the hell does that mean um and you sort of come to to know it but the uh bonduki sadagar i think maybe how you say that the the gun merchant yeah um and then you know over the course of the book uh dean and chenta sort of put together 
who the gun merchant was and how this sort of myth lines up with these real world uh, places and stories and stuff like that. Um, but also there's just a lot of stuff with like language and, and words in general. There's the whole thing of the hearing the, the, the Bangla in, in uh, Venice and how that's a sort of like, you know, kind of shocking moment that is coincidental, but not at the same time. Um, and just thinking about the overlapping of languages, both meaning like English and Bangla and Italian and all that sort of stuff, but also there's sort of like Pia and the language of science and reason. And then uh, Chinta sort of the, <laughs> it's kind of a weird dichotomy. She's sort of the voice of kind of the humanities and <laughs> in, in history yeah. and, uh, you know, faith in things unseen and that sort of stuff. And Dean's kind of an intermediary between the two, kind of like can translate between them and that sort of stuff uh not not literally but in a sort of uh, ideological sense um so it's just it it this that's why i think this book is kind of admirable even though it is kind of weird and like at first i wasn't finished it and i wasn't sure if i liked it had to think about it for a while but Mm -hmm. it's even though it's kind of you know for for gauche it's sort of a short book and it's really easy to read you can sort of blow through it in a day or two um, yeah. it, it's doing a lot of things and it's got a lot of interest, right? All those things we mentioned from the beginning that he has an interest in personally. Um, and they're all put in here and they all sort of fit together in a really cool and exciting way that kind of keeps you reading. I mean, there's a scene, the scene where, um, he's in, well, this, a couple of scenes, uh, both of them in the, the Venice section when he's in the house and the book like jumps off the shelf. Oh yeah, and he just like goes back to he's like fuck this and just goes back to bed. He's like I don't it's have like time. Inter- to deal with Interstellar. Someone's in the tesseract trying to uh, tell <laughs> yeah, him something. Yeah, and and that scene like generally or generally uh, genuinely kind of like creep me out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sort of like gives you like ooh spooky feeling, and then the the spider when he finds the spider on his computer because I'm a big arachnophobe loser. Um. <laughs> And it jumps out the window. There are some of those scenes where like those those little uh, sort of are they coincidence? Are they fate? Does it matter? Those sort of things happen. Um, you know, they're, they they got me pretty well. Right. So this is a really highly readable, but at the same time, really sort of complicated book with all the things that it's putting together. And it does it fairly well. Yeah. And and back to your point about. um, um Venice and the Sunderbonds as being kind of described with similar language. Um, I think that may be uh, like another iteration of that point is in the mistranslation of that phrase you mentioned. Uh, So on the first page, he translates, Dean translates Bunduk as, uh, I'm sorry, Bonduki Sadagar as the gun merchant <clears throat> uh, and then later through with the help of chenta he sort of realizes all the mistakes he's made in that translation and how it actually more accurately should be translated as the merchant who went to venice which of course recalls shakespeare's the merchant of venice mm-hmm. um, and i don't i don't exa- i don't really remember exactly what the significance of that is but it is i think on a on a more general level about this unification or or bringing together 
of uh, of the the Indian reality with the European reality, which again seems to be a, a sort of motif or, or theme of this book, uh, or maybe or maybe it's a, a larger thing of he's just trying to sort of globalize the issues that he's talking about and not you know not specify them to one location. He's certainly trying not to mystify India. That seems to be a, a major point. He does not want to, you know, uh, succumb to that trope of India as a sort of spiritual land, um, as opposed to, he's not saying it's not spiritual. He's saying if land is spiritual, it's all spiritual, not just one, you know, place that is called spiritual because of, you know, shitty movies you've seen or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is like, it, that's one reason that I thought um, Darjeeling Limited was kind of cool because it kind of shits on that a little bit. Um, <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, so the, he, all these sort of uh, connections that are made and, and sort of, it, it does a similar thing to what he does in the, the Ibis Trilogy, which is like, the Ibis Trilogy is all based around kind of the, the Opium War and the, uh, you know, rounding up and, and selling of workers that were, you know, that's where the term coolie comes from and being sent off to different parts of the British or French empire and that sort of stuff. And so it's sort of a way to show that the story of the, you know, the gun merchant or the merchant who went to Venice um, is kind of shown as this kind of mirror, kind of like when he's explaining the, uh, the slaves and the coolies and the servants, as opposed to like the, the migrants and refugees today trying to bring together past and present a little bit and show Venice as it's not weird that Venice is so multicultural and there's so many like Bengalis and that sort of stuff in Venice because Venice has always been this kind of crossroads and there's always been a lot of people from different cultures there and that sort of stuff. It would be really weird if Venice was completely filled with white Italian people is kind of the, <laughs> the implication. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's what he does in the Ibis trilogy, which is uh, a lot of it, well, a big chunk of it takes place on uh, Mauritius, I think is how you say the name of that country. It's a little island country. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And it's so Mauritius is was a, like a French possession and they speak this like Creole. That's a, a mixture of English, French and this uh, Indian language that I can't remember the name of. Um, Bajpuri. <laughs> so and a majority of the population there is of indian descent and this is sort of like interesting to think about this is kind of a side note but interesting to think about how colonialism changed the demographics of the world in such a massive way um you know but also now it's sort of travel and and you know searching for work and opportunity is sort of changing the world demographically, but then Ghosh is also suggesting like, is it really, is that really a demographic change or is it just the ideology change? And now we're seeing that as a negative, as opposed to like just the way things have kind of always been like, there's always been people from different parts of the world in this city working and trading and stuff like that. It's just now it takes on this extra tone of, you know, renewed nationalism and yeah. all that sort of yeah. shit. Yeah, that's that's a man. That's a complicated thing, and uh, it it seems to be one of one of the things he most wants you to think about. 
there's a lot of time in this novel given to um, uh, immigration and the sort of black market for uh, moving moving about without uh, around the world without proper identification and the sort of uh, economics and uh, job markets for it. You know, Rafi, who we haven't really talked about much, uh, um, describes the sort of work conditions uh, for these people, and it's it's not great. Um, but it, it, all that to say, it seems like Gosh wants wants us to have the the issue of sort of uh, immigration completely entwined with all the other issues uh, that he's writing about, namely climate. Uh, when we're done with this book, he wants he wants us to have those two issues together in our mind. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, you know, an important point to make. Uh, so he is trying to sort of co-mingle all those and, and show that it's not, it's not like, you know, the refugee crisis is in this box and climate change is in this box. It's like, they're all in the same big giant, you know, fuck off box that has all the, the problems <laughs> in it. <clears throat> and, and so I think it's important to, to remember, uh, that kind of kind of stuff and it comes up like you're saying when we learn about uh or specifically i'm thinking about when we get from rafi this kind of story of him and tipu um moving from sort of india to bangladesh to to you know through india again into pakistan and then afghanistan and like ending up at the turkish border and then uh rafi gets in tipu doesn't then he has to go through the Sinai Peninsula and through Egypt and all that sort of stuff. And it's a pretty, like, I, like, I don't know because I haven't had that experience, but I feel like it was a pretty kind of trying to be realistic representation of what that journey would be like from that place. Um, mm -hmm. and that they leave and they have all this money, but then because every time they have a stop, somebody's like, okay, now it costs more and now it costs more. And then eventually you end up having to borrow a bunch of money and now you're indebted and now they come and they beat you up and that sort of stuff. Um, and how it's just like a lose, 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 lose system, except for the people that are exploiting these people trying to pass through. Oh, sorry, yeah. I had to cough for and, a second. <clears throat> and uh, so we were talking a little bit earlier about how Rafi and Tipu, uh, one sort of criticism we were talking about of this book is how Ghosh treats kind of the the nor the stuff that's in normal novels you know like human romantic dramas and things like that so it's it's implied that uh rafi and tipu are in a romantic relationship and and yet it's just sort of dealt with um almost exactly as i just said it <laughs> you know yeah pretty it's just, much it's just like they are uh in a homosexual relationship and like <laughs> that's it. And there's no real, uh, there's no treatment of it other than that to where, to where you wonder the, the inclusion of it seems kind of conspicuous yeah. uh, oh. and not the inclusion of a relationship, but it's like, to me, it, it, it seems like, 
it seems like he's trying to be kind of hip well, yeah, <laughs> you know and i kind of i kind of felt that way too but there's also if you think about like if he goes the other way and like makes it a major plot point and like it's a this big driving force which it kind of is um without it being made super explicit then it can kind of run the risk of becoming kind of exploitative i think right and and so i would i would not suggest that he you know treat a homosexual relationship like it's this you know weird interesting you know spectacle <clears throat> but if it's not going to um i don't know if if the relationship regardless of its orientation is not important to the plot then there's no use of including it uh, but like you're saying it, it i guess with if you think about it enough maybe there is uh some sort of plot usefulness for this relationship but it just it just felt inconsistent with the rest of the book uh, the same way uh, or one other part that felt inconsistent and again it's about romantic relationships uh, a sort of subplot is that dean is kind of looking for love this whole book and you're kind of curious like which uh you know which character is he kind of into and it's it sort of shakes out that he's into pia despite their ideological differences and then <laughs> at the end like without much ado, um, P is just like, "Hey, you should come live in Oregon." And then, uh, let's see, I've got the page here. Uh, she says, "Because it struck me that you might like Eugene, Oregon." She said, "It's got great weather and a good library. You should check it out sometime." I don't know about that. I said, "Where would I stay?" I guess, she said tentatively, you could stay with me. I have a guest room. My heart was now beating so hard that I was afraid she would hear it. Ooh. I knew that saying <laughs> I knew that saying too much might turn her off forever, so I forced myself to sound casual. Sure, I said, I'd like that. And you know and you know what? If you like Eugene and feel like hanging around with me a bit longer, it would be easy to arrange something more comfortable. The apartment next to mine just fell vacant. It was a struggle not to portray the joy that was building inside me, trying to keep my voice steady. I said, it's certainly something to think about. I could let out my apartment in Brooklyn. The rent would bring in enough to live on. You should look into it. I will. Like, that is <laughs> the least, the least, uh, even with that final scene of the ocean turning a different color and a chakra of dolphins swimming around. Uh, that's the scene I just read is the least believable scene. <laughs> you don't think he's, he's slick, slick Dino. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it's just so, uh, it's just, it's just fucking weird. I don't know. It's kind of like a, it's cute, I guess. Um, no, it's unearned <laughs> is what that is. There's like no uh, other mention of that except like Pia like is scared and like at one point and like face is, in his chest yeah when they see a tornado or something or, yeah. yeah and i don't know it just it just feels like human emotion is kind of glossed over mm -hmm. and i i don't know if that's intentional um but it it 
those are the only parts that stood out as just sort of like um, kind of not expertly dealt with yeah. in terms of how they're represented. Well, you know, like Dean's real thirsty for for Pia for most of the novel, and he's he's sort of like, oh, should I email her? Is it too soon? Like that sort of thing. Uh, he's yeah. kind of like schoolboyish about it. But yeah, that scene at the end, like you're saying, like uh, Pia doesn't really. She's friendly, but she doesn't seem too doesn't seem too concerned with him uh, on a romantic level. And then she's like, "Oh, hey, you should uh, fly Move to the in. other side of the world and live right next to me for no reason that has been discussed previously." Which which what's your favorite bug? Praying mantis. Uh, <laughs> that is an excellent reference that no one else gets. <laughs> What what that's a tiger hologram by Sweatshop Boys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You listen to that if you're interested in in what that means. Yeah. In the follow up, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, like that that scene's just like yeah, I agree. I read that and I was just like, okay, fine, <laughs> sure. It looks like a stick sometimes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so. Yeah, just the the emotion. Uh, the way emotions are handled um, is just kind of strange, especially, you know, you think of Dean, like we were talking earlier, he has this kind of emotional breakdown and he's like kind of lusting after Pia. Um, and and me, all the while he's like trying to figure out what all this stuff means. And we haven't even talked about the, uh, the snake, but then the snake bite, uh, which is one of the more kind of seemingly supernatural ish, things that happens which is tipu gets bitten by this cobra and starts having these like visions and they he become kind of like he gets de-americanized by a snake bite <laughs> and, you know snakes are pretty phallic um <laughs> yeah and that, that's exactly what happens though you see so so tipu is like i said is a character uh as a as a very young lad in the hungry tide, right? Yeah. And and his father is killed, and Pia feels responsible for this because her uh, his father was helping her, and this is again this all takes place in the hungry tide, and so we learn early that Pia has sort of because she feels responsible, kind of spoiled Tipu and just like buys him shit like Xboxes and stuff, and. Uh, just sort of spoils him materially. And so he grows up and he's kind of an asshole. Um, and then he gets bitten by this snake. And all the things Gosha set up about Tipu start to fade away. Um, and so, and, and the snake is sort of tied up with this mythology and, and mythology and myths are a, uh, a very, prominent uh feature of this novel and their impact on uh real practical everyday life um but you you see the snake bite comes to sort of represent this other way of understanding the world kind of taking hold of tipu uh and so he just becomes much less of an asshole uh and starts taking a real um, kind of interest in 
in in the larger world uh, and his place within it. And that all happens very quickly. It's kind of strange. Yeah, it's a it's a weird kind of like just talking about Tipu's transformation. He gets bitten, and then he's on the boat, and it's like simultaneously he has the visions, and also he kind of like connects with Rafi on this like deep level, and that kind of is the beginning of their relationship, I assume. Right. Um, may like maybe there's meant to be something before the events of the novel, but that's what we see. So it, it's 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 interesting and then it, what's cool about it is that you know, you know you say he's kind of de-americanized and he he does sort of start have having these sort of like alternative kind of viewpoints but he still is like doing the computer hacking stuff and he like ever so often will contact dean and like ask him a few questions and then like disappear again and that sort of stuff he's kind of becomes this mysterious like hacker guy um so he still has all that sort of it it becomes more of like a combination of cultures as opposed to him just being like full-blown americanized you know sagging pants guy yeah frosted tips yeah um you know talking he called he calls dean pops right yeah which is so like that's 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 what an old man would think a young man would call an old man yeah. Well, he's trying, Ghosh is clearly trying to show, uh, how pronounced the, how pronounced of a generation gap Tipu experiences. And of course that goes away with the snake bite. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a, it's an interesting, that whole scene's interesting with the, the snake is kind of like watching over Dean and he doesn't see it, and then that like creeps. That's kind of like the what spurs, or what what sort of catalyzes his uh little breakdown he has, is yeah. like knowing the snake was there and watching him, but that he never saw it. Sort of like it's kind of like it, coming to a realization that the earth and non-human animals and nature and all these things have an agency beyond what you th- sort of attribute to them. And when he realizes that, he's like, "What the fuck?" And it like sends him yeah. down a spiral. Um, which I, I think was, it's an interesting, it is, it's kind of a strange way. Like, like I say, a lot of things in this book, it's sort of a strange way of presenting it. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There was one, uh, sentence. I think that summed that up pretty nicely, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. it. It's something about how he felt like he was being, reclaimed by some prime primordial ooze or something primeval ooze or something like mm-hmm. that um but that's that's a major theme is this the, that the snake represents um this sort of reclamation of the the earth kind of getting uh the earth sort of reasserting its place uh, nature asserting its place in culture. Um, yeah, I wish I could find that damn quote, but I can't. It's gone. <laughs> gone forever into the annals of history. <laughs> um, but are there any parts that, that you wanted to mention that we haven't covered yet? Because I'm trying to think of if there's anything that I've left out. I think most of the stuff I've marked we've, we've touched upon. 
Yeah, I think I think we got to most of what uh, I wanted to talk about as well. Uh, not not uh, just to just to put a bow on it. This is not a life changing novel, um, but it's a very thoughtful novel and a novel that I think invites you to think not only about the sort of external issues of climate and immigration and that, but about um, representations of climate and immigration uh, in fiction and any, any, you know, not just novels, but film and, and any other form. So if you're nerds like us and are interested in representations of climate and environment and nature, then, uh, then I recommend it. If you're not interested in that, fuck you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I agree. I mean, there's, like you said, it's not, this novel probably is not going to change your life, but it, it's going to make you think about shit in a, in a different kind of way. And that's why I, I like to think about it and refer to it as this, this kind of new climate fiction, because if you think of books that are considered climate fiction from before this, they're usually, like we said, like science fiction or something like that. And the book is very on its face explicitly about, you know, a future in which there is no water or something like that. And this is not that, right? This is about the present, this kind of uncanny present. And it's presenting all these things as this interconnected system of things that, you know, some of them you can change, some of them you cannot, some of them you just have to learn how to, you know, live differently within. And I think that is a really, it's a really sort, the novel is this really, I'm going to say really a few more times. This novel is a great kind of experiment in creating the kind of literature that he talks about in the great derangement. If you want a book that's going to change your life, go read the great derangement and then read this and see how he's trying to put that into practice. Right. And it's not perfect by any means, but I think it's a really good attempt and it's definitely exciting to see. Yeah. I I think I said this before, but it kind of reminds me of the the relationship of the great derangement to uh, gun Island reminds me of the relationship between um, the myth of Sisyphus and the plague. Mm, okay. As it's just like the plague is kind of a fictional representation of the, uh, of the philosophy put forward in the myth of Sisyphus. Um, the same way gun Island is a fictional representation of the sort of, uh, theoretical stuff he's talking about in, in the great arrangement. Um, but one more thing I did want to mention is in one of the talks Ghosh gives, he's talking about, uh, uh, Steinbeck, the grapes of wrath and, uh, Moby Dick by Melville and how both of those novels are never talked about as like climate novels because they kind of predate the political discussion of climate change. Um, but how, how those, those books deal with nature and human beings relationship to nature and especially the grapes of wrath about changing climate 
and its impact on everything and how rare that is in American fiction, how difficult it is. And he basically says there's never been anyone to write as uh, about changing climate. Um, No one in America writes has written anything like the grapes of wrath since the grapes of wrath. Uh, and and basically his art, one of his main arguments in the great derangement is that a complex convergence of factors prevents people writers from writing about issues like that about climate and representing climate um, so i'm probably going to go read the grapes of wrath yeah yeah definitely I mean, you should do that anyway, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but it, there's another, this is just kind of like related, but not directly. There's a, a book by the writer James Still, who's maybe not super well known, but he was a big, he's not from Kentucky, but he spent a lot of time in Kentucky. So I kind of know of him from that, but he wrote a lot of poetry, but he also wrote this novel called River of Earth and it's published around the same time, maybe I think even in the same year as Grapes of Wrath. And it's sort of similar. It's about a family struggling. Um, but instead of being in, in Oklahoma in the Midwest, they're in uh, Eastern Kentucky. And it's about, it's less about so this kind of, well, I, I guess it is related in this way because, you know, the Dust Bowl is created through like negligent and, and poorly thought out agricultural processes and that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, rapid development. So this is kind of about that too, except it's more related to like coal mining and, the refusal to settle down and form some sort of emplaced kind of renewable self-sufficient existence and instead relying on uh, work from the coal mine and progress and buying things from a store and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Really great book. Pretty short. Um, Shorter than Grapes of Wrath, but still really, really good and really well written. I recommend it to to anyone. I liked Um, it because it wasn't too long. (laughs) I had a... I mean, this is, this is definitely unrelated, but, uh, I took some poetry, uh, poetry workshop classes at the university of Kentucky as an undergrad with the poet, Nikki Finney, who like has won a national book award and all this sort of shit, uh, really great poet. And she would have us come to her office and meet with her and like, talk about our work and stuff like that. And I, I said something that was like, I've always preferred writing poetry because I went, if I try to write fiction, I usually have trouble like maintaining an idea over a long stretch of time. And I was just trying to say like, I find the form of poetry easier because the ideas I have are usually like condensable or I like to condense big ideas down into these like smaller chunks and stuff like that. And what she got out of it, she just looked at me and she was like, so you don't like writing fiction because it's too long. (laughs) And I was like, ah, shit. (laughs) Yep. Nailed it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you got me. I guess I'll leave forever. I'll just walk into the ocean. (laughs) Uh, I'm done. I got, (laughs) I got no more things to say. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, I think this went well in the future as we've been talking about, I think at one point we have to do, uh, the overstory by by Richard powers, which is a, a super great novel that has a lot of intersections with things we've talked about uh, on the podcast. Uh, but that's that'll just be... what the blurb says on the back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a super great novel. 
<laughs> so it, we'll we'll do that um, at some point in the future. But next week, uh, going back to film, and we're doing one that we probably should have done a long time ago, but we just never got around to it, which is Into the Wild from 2007, directed by Sean Penn, based on the book of the same name by John Krakauer. I recommend both. And uh, that's what we'll be doing. Getting yep. our Sing- This is on. the first time we've done a single film in a while. I know. It's kind of like, it's kind of funny because last week we decided to do the book and when we stopped recording, you were like, it's really cool. I don't have to watch a movie this week. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to read a book instead. Um, I did watch a movie this week. It was Hook. Nice. On VHS. It's a good one. Um, so. On, on VHS. <laughs> uh, very hipster status. That's what that stands for. Ooh. Um, so yeah, next week, uh, into the wild, we're going to listen to some, uh, Eddie Vedder tunes. Oh my God. I forgot about that. Great An- soundtrack. That, that angel from Montgomery scene. Looking forward to that. Yep. That sounded creepier than I meant it to. I like that song. That's <laughs> <laughs> why I said that. Um, so, uh, yeah, the end. Close the book. I got uh, four Miller High Lifes left just calling my name. Well, brother, you better go answer that call. It's a champagne of beers. 